Well, I do hope that you had a good Thanksgiving together with family and friends. It's good to be back with you in worship. Welcome you here, both those of you who are here with us live and those of you who are watching over our live stream. Blessing to be with you and to dig into God's Word. Today, we're going to be talking about power. And what we're really going to be talking about is invisible power. We're very familiar with power that's obvious and manifest, but uh, invisible power sometimes eludes us, but I think it's the most important kind of all, especially when we're talking about God's power. Our message today is titled, Conduit, the Awesome Effect of God's Power. Here in Texas, I'm sure things are different, but where I'm originally from in California, there isn't a lot of love for God. Now, there's some, but it's kind of tucked away. Hard to find sometimes, and, and basically it's kind of on the run. Those who don't believe in God, those who are antagonistic toward him rule the day. Those who do hold faithfully to what he says sort of are hunkered down. And frankly, I think sort of waiting for Jesus to return. Breaks my heart. There are some who are still going out onto the front lines and trying to make a difference, but I'm going to tell you, it's, it's hard soil. And I ask myself, why? Why is it so difficult in some places to find a soft heart toward the things of God, especially in our world today? I think it boils down to power. I think it boils down to people no longer believing that God exists because they don't see any evidence for it, because it's hidden. And I suspect that we have a lot to bear responsibility for in that because we don't sometimes believe that God has any power ourselves. When we talk about it, we sing about it. But as a practical measure in our everyday lives, we don't often experience it or seek it or maybe even believe that it's real. We know it's real in the Bible. We've read those stories, but I don't know. Maybe today we sort of drifted from that. My family was coming to visit for Thanksgiving, and so we needed to make preparations for our house. Anybody that's ever been in there knows that a lot of preparations needed to be made because we were going to have small babies running around. So I spent the last few days before Thanksgiving just really trying to get things ready to make things safe. And one of the things I needed to do was to put plates on all of the outlets. Normally a simple job, but putting in a screw or two, even I can handle that. But there was one outlet that wasn't actually secured to the wall yet. So I needed to do that before I could put a plate on to keep it safe. And I was in a rush to do it because I knew I had a lot of other things I needed to get done. And so I forgot to do something. Those of you who've ever done that job probably have already figured out what I forgot to do. So I started messing with the outlet and trying to push it into the wall and get it to where I could put the mounting screws in and then guess what happened? I got reminded that just because you can't see electricity, it is real. And it bit me and lit my feelings up and reminded me, along with my son, who was yelling at me, Dad, turn the power off before you start messing with that stuff. And he was so right. Sometimes if we don't see power, we forget that it's there. And we also forget how dangerous it can be. But also, how wondrous. Without power, we don't run all of our marvelous devices that we enjoy. But it can also be very, very scary and even deadly. God's power is much 
the same. And the more we're aware of it, and, and more importantly, the more we experience it and access it as believers, because we are told that we are his conduits. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, if you're connected to me, I will flow everything through you, and you will produce all of the fruit that you need. The fruit is the power of God. When was the last time God did something through you that was inexplicable in any other way except that his power was flowing through you? Have you ever experienced that? Well, today we're going to talk about somebody who did and what kind of an amazing effect it had. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6. I know we've been in the Old Testament a lot since I've gotten here. Trust me, I do believe in the New Testament, and I will teach through it a lot in the days ahead. But there's just a lot of great stories in the Old Testament that I think sometimes we miss. And this is one of them. 2 Kings chapter 6. I'm going to tell you a story, and it's going to have essentially three characters. The first is a king who was named Joram, or sometimes he's called Jehoram. He was a king in the northern tribes of Israel. He was the son of Ahab and Jezebel, probably the two worst kings in Israel's history. Certainly they were, were the two worst monarchs in their history, and maybe the two worst monarchs ever. And eventually God dealt with them because they were wicked, and then their son Joram wound up taking over from them. And he was not as bad as his parents by way of wickedness and idolatry. That would have taken some doing to outdo them. But he was pretty bad. He was still wicked. He got rid of their idolatrous direct worship of, of a pagan deity called Baal, or sometimes he's referred to today as Baal. It was the god of Jezebel because she came from a place called Tyre and Sidon, and that was sort of the seat of Baal worship in this world. And he got rid of that because he knew that was displeasing to God and, and frankly displeasing to most of the people. But he didn't go back to the original worship system established by God through the temple at Jerusalem. He just simply brought them back to the idolatrous system that predated Baal worship, which was the pagan idolatry of um, Jeroboam, his predecessor, the original king of Israel. So he's the first character, this wicked king named Joram. The second character is a very familiar one, Elisha, a prophet. He was the protege to his ministerial um, mentor, a guy by the name of Elijah. And because of Joram's relentless evil, um, Elisha had a similar relationship to Joram that Elijah had had with his predecessors, his parents, Ahab and Jezebel, and that is adversarial, according to 2 Kings 3.13. Nevertheless, because Elisha was really flowing God's power, and God still loved Israel and was trying to get them to come back to where they needed to be, Joram actually benefits from the work God was doing through Elisha, which tells you and I that our world, even though it is wicked and turned away from God, can still benefit from what God can do through us. As a matter of fact, that's what we're called to be, salt and light in a dying world. So that's the second character, Elisha. And then the third character 
are the Arameans. Now, the Arameans were a nation that was to the north of Israel in what today would be modern Syria. And they were actually related to the Israelis. They were cousins tracing all the way back through Noah's son, Shem. And Shem had a pair of sons who became, one became the father of the Arameans and the other became the father of the Israelis. The Arameans had Syria as their nation, Damascus as their capital, but they fought with the Israelis all the time because they shared a common border. And you put people next to each other as neighbors, eventually they're going to squabble, even if they're in a church, believe it or not. So these nations fought, and sometimes they would unite against a greater power. When the Assyrians later rose up to to power, they would sort of unite to fight against them. And they had times when they got along, but most of the time they fought with each other. So those are the three main characters, which brings us to our passage, 2 Kings chapter 6, starting at verse 8. It says, Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. Okay, let's identify who the king of Syria is. Historically, we know that this is a man named Ben-Hadad II. That probably means nothing to you, but if you know your Bible, and if you remember the story where um, there was a, a man named uh, Naaman, and he was a commander in the Aramean army, and he was sent by his king, who's the same guy, Ben-Hadad II, he was sent to King Jeram to be healed because Ben-Hadad had heard that there was someone in Israel who had the power to perform miraculous healing. He just presumed that it would be the king, but when he sent him to Jeram, Jeram was like, well, first of all, I don't have the power to heal anybody. And second of all, the fact that he's been sent to me to be healed means that this other king is, is trying to basically start something up between us. And you read about this in 2 Kings chapter 5. Eventually, Elisha rises up and says, hey, listen, the king can't help you with this, but my God can. And he winds up healing Naaman, and Naaman winds up going back to his land And I'm convinced because of that gesture that that created peace between them for a while, but it had deteriorated, and so now they're at war again. And so this king, Ben-Hadad, who's gone out for war against his neighbors, decides that he's going to set up an ambush. He's going to attack the Israelis, and what he's really trying to do is capture their king, because he figures if he captures their king, then he owns them. So he says, I'm going to set up my camp. Why that means it's just basically his base of military operations. Verse 9, but the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. The term man of God was used of both Elijah, his predecessor, and Elisha himself. What a great moniker when you're just referred to as the man of God. Would that we all were thought that way by those who know us. He says, and Elisha hears from God What Ben-Hadad is up to. So this is miraculous intervention on God's part to help protect his people, which he had promised to do. Even though they're behaving wickedly, he's still working on their behalf, which is one of the most astounding things about God is grace. And so because of that, Elisha warns Joram, and he says, listen, I'm just going to tell you straight up. Don't go to this area because the Arameans are there, Ben-Hadad is waiting, and they're setting an ambush for you. Verse 10, and the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. 
Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself more than once or twice. Okay, so Joram hears that there's this potential ambush. He sends scouts to find out whether or not it's true because him and Elisha don't have the best of relationships and therefore there isn't a lot of trust. The scouts come back and report, you're not going to believe it. But he was 100% right. Hidden away in an area where you couldn't see him is the entire Aramean army, including Ben-Hadad himself. And they are, in fact, lying in wait. This information not only allowed Joram to escape being captured himself, but also gave him what he needed to set counter ambushes toward the Arameans. So every time they set up a secret camp thinking that they were going to do the Israelis in, just the opposite occurred, which is what tends to happen when God gets involved in things. More than once or twice, that's just another way of saying that Joram escaped, that, that Ben-Hadad kept setting up ambushes all over the borderlands of Israel, and Joram kept escaping because of the help of Elisha, verse 11. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? Pretty simple here. Okay, listen. Once, maybe. Twice, possibly. Three times, pretty unlikely. Time and time and time again, we reestablish a new camp in a hidden place. We don't tell anybody what's going on. And this guy still figures out where we're at. And we wind up getting crushed. We have a spy, and I intend to figure out who it is. Verse 12, and one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So now we find out that his counselors tell him, listen, king, I know you're feeling paranoid by now, and I understand why, but you need to know. We don't have a spy. That's not the issue. The issue is that they have a prophet. They have someone helping them, and he himself is receiving divine assistance. You're fighting not against another king. You're fighting against their God. Which is interesting that they know this. How do they know that Elisha is telling Joram what Hadad is saying in his bedroom? How could they possibly have that information? You know how? Very simple. Whereas Ben-Hadad thought the Israelis had a mole in his camp, but he didn't, Hadad apparently had several moles in Joram's camp who were reporting back everything. And one of these moles comes back to him and says, listen, we don't have a spy. They've got a prophet. You know how I know? Because we've got spies everywhere. And they're telling me that the way this knucklehead is figuring out where we're at is there's this crazy prophet who keeps coming in and warning him. Verse 13. And he said, go and see where he is, speaking about Elisha, that I may send and seize him. It was told, behold, he is in Dothan. Dothan was a little fortress village in a mountain range just about 10 miles north of Samaria, which was where the Israeli capital was at this time, verse 14. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now look at this. 
Who's he going after? One guy, right? How many men does it take to capture one guy? Apparently, an army. Apparently, it takes a whole army, horses and chariots. He sends overwhelming force to capture one guy. Why? Well, there's a number of possibilities. He might have thought that the city of Dothan would protect him, and therefore he would need a military force to lay siege to the city and to crush them. But trust me when I say that, that Dothan wasn't really a stronghold. It wasn't a place that could hold out against this kind of a force. This is really killing a fly with a sledgehammer. He's sending an overwhelming force, and I don't think it has to do with, oh, the mighty city of Dothan, what shall we do if they decide to resist us? He knew that he could squish Dothan. He probably thought he could squish Samaria if he needed to. He wouldn't be as provocative as he was with his military skirmishes already if he didn't have confidence that he could crush Israel. There's another reason why he sends overwhelming force. It's very simple. Memory. You see... Ben-Hadad was the king when Naaman came back healed from leprosy. Ben-Hadad was the king that Naaman came back and told about all that the God of Israel could do. He even establishes worship, a shrine in Aram, in order to be able to worship this deity himself. And this guy had the king's ear. And whether the king actually believed that he'd been healed, he couldn't deny what he saw when he got back. And I think deep down... Ben-Hadad was afraid of Jehovah, and rightly so. Nothing builds respect like a little bit of fear. So they reach into the city, and they lay siege. He sends an overwhelming force. Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, this servant is new on the job. He was more than likely one of the other prophets that was on the scene at the time. And he had become the new aide for Elijah, or Elisha, I should say. You know why? Well, because of a guy named Gehazi that I don't really have a lot of time to tell you his story, but let's just put it this way. What Naaman got rid of, Gehazi inherited because of wickedness. And so Gehazi was no longer able to serve in his role. So there's a new guy on the job, and the new guy on the job hasn't had the time yet to see everything that Elisha's God is able to do. And so because he doesn't really know what God's capable of, when he sees this army surround the city, he gets scared. Which, by the way, dear ones, is what always happens when we don't know God the way we should. Life scares us. It overwhelms us. He looked around, and all he could see were these troops. The troops had come in by cover of night, according to verse 14, through a place called the Dothan Valley, which would make them almost invisible, especially at night. And by the time the city of Dothan wakes up, they are surrounded by overwhelming numbers. Verse 16, how does Elisha respond? He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, I'm sure when Elisha said that, the first thing that occurred to the servant was, hey, you're crazy. You're crazy. 
What do you mean, those who are with us? Who's with us? First of all, do you think the people of this city are going to protect us against this? Even if they put up a fight, they can't last. And second of all, I don't really think they're going to put up a fight. I think that as soon as these army soldiers come and say, hey, listen, either deliver up Elisha or we're going to slaughter every one of you, they're going to serve us up on a platter because that's human nature. Satan said that. Skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll give in exchange for his life. So this servant isn't real impressed by Elisha's reassurance that, don't worry, we outnumber them. You're crazy. We don't outnumber them. Elisha says, those who are with us, who's with us? Who are you talking about? What invisible army are you referring to? We are outnumbered, outgunned, hopeless. Ever feel that way? When you go to work, and maybe you're the only person that shares your faith, has your faith. When you're out in public, you see how people live. When you watch the news and see what's going on in this crazy world of ours, where it feels like chaos reigns, ever feel like we are surrounded and it is just a matter of time before we are overwhelmed and destroyed? Elisha saw what his servant couldn't see, which goes to tell you that even if you know God, even if you seek God, even if you serve God, it doesn't mean that you always see what God is doing. For that, he needs special eyes. Elisha told him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. No need. This kind of courage is a direct byproduct of having spiritual eyes, of being able to see what other people miss. So what did he see that this servant didn't? Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God enabled this young servant of Elisha to suddenly see what he was missing. You want to know something, dear ones? You need to be asking God to show you what you're missing. If you're discouraged, if you're afraid, if you're feeling isolated and defeated, if you're ready to give up, if you're ready to embrace what the world says and just go along to get along or to believe lies that are being fed to you, you're not seeing the full picture. You're not seeing what God is doing. Because like that electricity that liked to took the teeth out of my mouth the other day, the power that you're missing is big. And just because it's invisible doesn't mean it ain't real. So, this force, it's interesting that Elisha recognized it right away. You know why? Because it was of the same pedigree as the escort that his mentor, Elijah, had received when he was caught up into heaven. Elisha recognized this army. He had seen it before. 
which tells you how important experience in ministry is. You know, if you're young in Christ, and maybe you haven't had a lot of experience of seeing what God can do in impossible situations, you need to get next to. You need to be mentored by somebody who has and who can reassure you when your knees start to buckle, who can say to you, don't be afraid. I've seen God in these situations before. He knows what he's doing. That's what Elisha did for this young servant. Verse 18, when the Syrians came down against him, in other words, they're moving in for their final attack, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. This blindness is really interesting. In Hebrew, it's the word sanvarim, and it is only used twice in the Old Testament, which means it was a very special kind of blindness. You know the other time it was used? In a very familiar place called Sodom. It's the same thing that God did to the Sodomites who were trying to rape the angels who were there to rescue Lot and his family. And what happened when this blindness fell? We're told that the men of the city were rendered immediately vulnerable. Immediately they went from these aggressive predators to prey. And God used it to hold them right where he wanted them to bring about the judgment they had coming. Verse 19. And so now you've got this army, and they viewed themselves as the aggressor. They're the wolves. The people of Dothan and Elisha and his servant are the sheep. They're moving in for the kill, and all of a sudden, something brilliant flashes, and it stops them in their tracks. Verse 19, and Elisha said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Ever wondered where George Lucas ripped off the Jedi mind trip? Right here. <laughs> These are not the droids you seek. These are not the men. This is the city. Follow me. I'll take you where you want to go. I'll take you right where you can find this man you're looking for. And what happens? This blindness isn't just they can't see. It makes them very docile and vulnerable so that they literally get up while blinded and follow the voice of Elisha as he marches them back to the what would have been for them the Death Star. He marches them right back to the capital city where the armies of Israel were stationed, which is what God can do. He can take people who think they're strong and who can crush his work, and he makes them like putty in his hand. But you've got to have the right eyes to see when he does that. Follows them right. They follow him right to Samaria, verse 20. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Exodus 4.11 says, only God can restore sight, only God can take sight, only God can do this kind of stuff. Verse 21, as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Good old Jotham, always predictable, always an idiot. What did he have to do with this army showing up? Nothing. But what does he want? He wants their heads. 
He wants the glory. He wants to prove that he's the real king and in real power. But fortunately, he has enough sense to at least say, hmm, the guy that led him in here blind because of the God that was with him, the guy that I've been antagonistic toward, fighting against, maybe I should ask his permission before I do anything. It's the only smart thing he does in the whole story. Other than referring to Elisha as my father, this was uh, a sign of respect and reverence culturally. Verse 22, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. First of all, what Elisha is reminding us, first of all, these aren't your prisoners. (laughs) These are God's prisoners. You don't get to pick what happens to them. So calm down the bloodlust. Secondly, even if they were your prisoners, is this how you would treat a prisoner that was helpless? Would you slaughter them? I mean, you want to enrage the Arameans. You, you want scorched earth. You, you want an army that will come and fight against you with everything they've got. Slaughter these men and see what happens. This very thing happened in World War II. The Germans, word got out that they were slaughtering American prisoners who were surrendering. And it stiffened the backbone of the American army and the Allied force. It turned the course of the war during the Battle of the Bulge. So Elisha is wise here. More importantly, what he's trying to show this godless king is that there are, there's more than one way to deal with an enemy. You don't always have to crush and destroy your enemy. Sometimes the way you get rid of an enemy is by turning him into an ally. Verse 23, So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Elisha orders the king to prepare a great feast for this army that had come to kill all of them. That itself seems a little odd until you hear the words of Jesus when he says, if your enemy is hungry or thirsty, feed, give them water, heat burning coals, Paul said. So this great feast, according to theologian Herbert Livingston, in the ancient East here, the Near East, um, doing this was more than just feeding them and taking care of their physical needs. It was a cultural gesture which actually worked in the form of a covenant. It caused an enemy to become a friend. They became duty-bound to never attack you again because you had shown them hospitality. You know, it's amazing what a little meal can do for enemies. Maybe some of you experienced that at Thanksgiving. Food cures a lot of ills, doesn't it? Calms down a lot of hard feelings. Well, culturally speaking, that's what happened here. We're told that temporarily, because of this gesture, because he sent the army home after this, he sent them back. Now, theoretically, they could have just turned around at Hadad's order and come back and attacked Israel. But culturally speaking, they couldn't, would not. I don't even think at the king's command they would have. Because this was a a deep-seated cultural understanding is you don't attack people who feed and care for you, who are merciful toward you. You don't do that. Beloved, how much cultural influence could you and I wield if we sometimes put down the sword and pick up the picnic basket and start trying to bless people that we've had so much animosity toward. I know, listen, you got to stand for the truth, and sometimes if people hate that, they hate that. But Jesus 
taught us all that you win a lot more people with, with love sometimes than, than you do with aggression. Okay. What's the effect of God's power in this story? Three things. Of course, three things. I'm a pastor. This is a sermon. What would you expect? Two? Five? Of course there's three things. That's day one in pastor school. There's always three points. Okay. The awesome effect of God's power. Number one, we become intrepid. That's, that's a word maybe that's foreign to you. It just means courageous, bold. God's power, when you know that God's power is real and you know that God wants to use you as the conduit through whom he will flow his power, it makes you bold. It calms down your fear. Boy, do we need that. These are scary times and it seems like no matter which way you turn, there's something to be afraid of. God's power calms us down. Verse 16, Elisha told his servant, don't be afraid, those who are with us are more than those who are out there. If God be for us, who can be against us? that sound familiar to anybody? We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I think we would be a lot bolder in sharing our faith, in showing love to the lost world outside, and confident in who our God is, so that we're not always on the defensive, that we're not insecure, You know, the New Testament church flipped the world on its ear because it had this kind of confidence in the power of God. God was doing some pretty amazing stuff in their midst, and because of it, the outside world was coming in, if for no other reason than curiosity. And that gave them great opportunity to demonstrate what their God was capable of. It says in Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. So the first thing is we become intrepid. The second thing is we become insightful. Verse 17, Elisha told his servant, or told God, asked God in prayer, open his eyes so he can see. You know, I've done that. I've prayed for people who've come in to me for counseling who were afraid or who were angry or who were lost, and I have prayed, God, would you open their eyes and help them to see what they're missing? That's an important prayer to pray sometimes for people. What we tend to do is think, oh, i got to set this guy straight. What a nincompoop. You know, sometimes it's just best to pray, God, would you just open their eyes? Be patient with those whose faith is weak, it says. It is, God, would you teach them? Would you instruct them? You and I can gain spiritual insight. We can see things that others miss when we begin to pour over his word and take our nose out of our phone or turn off the news. Or stop listening to what everybody else says. And just give the Lord a chance to begin to show us what we're missing. Ephesians 1, 16 and 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer, so that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Okay, we become intrepid. We become insightful. Those are two things we need a lot of. We need way more of it than we've got. More courage, more wisdom. Lastly, we become influential. Verse 23, because of what Elisha did, because of the demonstration of God's power through him, think about the story that these Aramean soldiers had when they got back. So what happened? I sent you down to bring back Elisha. Where is he? Well, um, you're not going to believe it. 
he blinded us. He led us into Samaria. He led you into where? He led, you into, he led us into Samaria. Why are you not dead? Well, they didn't kill us. Why? Because he told them not to. He told them instead to feed us. Well, what happened then? Well, he sent us back to you. Why? I think to tell you what happened and maybe to have you calm down a little bit because we don't think you should be messing with their God. We don't think you should be messing with them. And we know one thing, we don't want any part of that. We made our covenant, we gave our word. Look at the influence that they had. Amazing. What would happen if the church today began to wield that kind of influence in this culture? It's possible still, believe it or not. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How does this happen? How do we lay hold of this? You know, sometimes I think the, the only time we ever lay hold of God's power is by accident, like me with that outlet the other day. We just sort of stumble into it, and we see God do something amazing. You know, maybe you get invited to go to a food uh, pantry event, and you witness God do a miracle, and you're just glad that you were there, that you had the sense to show up. Sometimes we just get it that way. But I think we should be more deliberate about it. I think we should be seeking it. I think we should be looking to join God in where he is pouring out his power. But to do that, we have to be grounded. We have to be grounded in this book. you got to crack it open. you got to read it. You have to see these stories and be reminded of what God has done in the past. These things are written, we're told, that we might believe. And if we believe, anything's possible. Crazy stuff. I'm going to tell you a story. I heard this from the guy himself, Stuart Briscoe. Some of you may know who... Stewart is. Um, he's a pastor, an author, international speaker. Uh, he founded a ministry along with his wife, Jill, called Telling the Truth Ministries. He's a great storyteller. I, I love listening to him. He says this, during my days of shepherding Elmbrook Church in Brookfield, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of Milwaukee, many of the folks in our congregation were like much of the state of German descent. To that end, there was one particular couple who had fled to the U.S. from East Berlin shortly before the communists built the wall. After arriving in Milwaukee, the husband had started a small business doing what he knew best, construction. And after some success, he was able to help other family members who had also come over by hiring them into various roles and then teaching them his trade. One such individual was just known as Uncle Ludwig. Uncle Ludwig was very sweethearted and very determined to learn, but he was just really struggling to pick it up. But after a lot of patience and a lot of hard work and a lot of mentoring, this man had finally helped Uncle Ludwig to figure out how to do masonry work. One wintry day, he left Ludwig alone on a site with the materials and instructions to build a brick fireplace with a certain number of courses high, wide, and deep adjacent to the house that it would serve. After being assured by his uncle that he understood what was expected, he left him to his work. 
Over the next several hours, Ludwig carefully laid out and mortared up each level exactly as he'd been instructed. But when he got toward the end, he noticed a problem. The fireplace was much too tall, with the top of the flue towering at least three to four feet too high above the roof line. Undaunted, he simply reclined the scaffolding, took out his trowel, and began gently removing row upon row of bricks until the height was just right. When his nephew later returned to inspect the work, he was duly impressed until he saw the stacks of unused bricks that were laying next to the structure. Uh, what are all of these? he asked. Oh, those are the leftovers, Ludwig said. I think there must have been some mistake in the original calculations because when I finished building it the way you asked, using all of them, it was much too high. Hmm, that seems unlikely, the man said. I've been doing these things for years and those numbers were spot on. With that, he quickly reinspected the work and spotted the issue. Pointing to the base of the structure, he said, Uncle Ludwig, do you notice anything wrong here? No, not really, Ludwig replied. Well, I sure do. You see, it's the dead of winter, Uncle, and we are in Wisconsin. That means there's a thick layer of ice on the ground that has to be removed before you can start building. Essentially, you've constructed this fireplace on three to four feet of compacted snow. That means that's why it was too tall when you got done. And that means it's all going to have to be torn down and redone, and you're going to have to dig it out and plant it on solid ground. Otherwise, as soon as summer comes, it's going to collapse. You know, dear ones, I think sometimes too many of us have constructed our lives that way. We've built our perception of the world on what we've been taught or what we've seen the assumptions we've made, the things we've been told, the lies we've believed, and because of it, we're like that fireplace. All we're doing is waiting for summer to come, and we're going to topple over. My hope and prayer is that you will begin, if you need to, to tear the whole thing down, come back to this book, and begin to rebuild your understanding of yourself, those around you, and the world you live in based on this book. For it is God's only truth and the only access to the power that he wields, which is hidden, but real important. Father, I thank you for your word, which is truth. I pray that it would burrow its way into our hearts, Lord. So often we're afraid, we're confused, we're lost, we're discouraged, and then we just give in to the world, Lord. We forget what we've been taught, we forget your truth, we lose our way. And then we just get steamrolled, Lord. And how tragic that that should happen with such amazing power so close by. Father, I pray that you would bring us back to your truth. Bring us back to the basics. Or maybe if we don't know what they are, to begin to seek them, Lord. That we could tap into the amazing resource that you are. That we would be strengthened, encouraged. That we would have wisdom and begin to influence others to your way, to your truth, to your hope. In Jesus' name, amen.